I want to say to you as I move to my conclusion, as we talk about where do we go from here, we must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. One day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. You see, my friends, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? These are words that must be said. Now, don't think you have me in a bind today. I'm not talking about communism. What I'm talking about is far beyond communism. My inspiration didn't come from Karl Marx. My inspiration didn't come from Engels. My inspiration didn't come from Trotsky. My inspiration didn't come from Lenin. Yes, I read Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital a long time ago. And I saw that maybe Marx didn't follow Hegel enough. He took his dialectics, but he left out his idealism and his spiritualism, and he went over to a German philosopher by the name of Feuerbach and took his materialism and made it into a system that he called dialectical materialism. I have to reject that. What I'm saying to you this morning, communism forgets that life is individual. Capitalism forgets that life is social. The kingdom of brotherhood is found neither in the thesis of communism nor the antithesis of capitalism, but in a higher synthesis. Welcome to Off Baseline. I'm Nate Staley. This episode marks one year since the start of this podcast. So to get in the spirit, I have invited back my first guest, Reverend Stephen Andrews, pastor of Parkville Presbyterian Church to commemorate the occasion and perhaps discuss some interesting things. Just a reminder, um, you can support the show by um, subscribing on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, also Google Play, Stitcher, um, other services as well that I'm not thinking of right now but exist. You can 
leave a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Um, you can also follow the show on Twitter at Off Baseline, or you can find it on Facebook using uh, your keyboard or your fingers to type in the name of the show and it'll pop up. Um, thanks so much uh, for listening over this past year. And uh, I'm excited for what this year will bring. Um, hopefully new and exciting things, different things. Um, I might be at the current moment um, operating under a one podcast per month sort of uh, frequency. I, I know it's adjusted here and there um, over the past year, but that seems to be what's doable for me right now. And um, I've got some thoughts about where I want this show to be headed, but um, so stay tuned for that. In what follows is a conversation with Stephen Andrews. Um, hope you enjoy. It's your birthday, yes it is your birthday, it's your birthday, yes it is your birthday, it's your birthday, yes it is your birthday, we are super psyched. You're one year older than you were before, you're one year older than you were before, you're one year older than you were before, we are super psyched. It wasn't so long ago, your mom was in the hospital, what was she doing? Join the podcast's birthday, first birthday party. <laughs> How has the first year been? The first year has been um, really interesting, at times seeming a little arduous. And, and, you know, I started off out of the gate making hour plus episode, like, like a couple of hours of audio in the episodes and I'd have a guest on every show and it was really ambitious. Mm -hmm. It was really ambitious. Okay. And, and then, um, as the year went on, I realized that I couldn't keep that pace. Um, mm, gotcha. yeah. So, I mean, it was, how often, how often do you release them? It, uh, and that's another thing that started, I was releasing, uh, the plan was a couple of times each month. Um, mm. and then it slowly started to fade out to monthly podcasts and, okay. um, and then, uh, there was a couple of months, uh, well, just one month, I think September, I didn't do a podcast. And the thing about when you don't actually do one is that it, um, like a lot of the subscriptions on people's devices sort of might boot you off, you know, after a certain amount of time. Mm. So you lose listeners okay. if you don't keep it up okay. um but i've talked to a lot of interesting people and it kind of the show kind of took on an emphasis like different than where i saw it going initially which is i kind of expected and i got better sort of at what i was trying to communicate so it got harder but it got easier at the same time um, over the past year so it's just that's been fun. I mean, um, obviously I'm not, this isn't like a financially, <laughs> um, beneficial thing for me to do. This is purely like, I want to do this. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I think otherwise I, 
you know, might keep that schedule a little more tight, but, um, yeah, this time last year, it was also around MLK day and we offered reflections on that. If I could, um, and no pressure, there's no, like, I, I, I don't exactly have this all planned out, but if I could like, uh, sort of vamp <laughs> for a second on, um, sure. an article. Um, and then I had like maybe a couple of questions sort of from your perspective. Okay. Sounds good. It's, uh, an online publication called in these times. And, uh, it's an article called the forgotten socialist history of Martin Luther King. Um, and it, it cites interviews he did with uh, the New York Times regarding his work with uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, talking mm-hmm. about being engaged in a class struggle, about faults with capitalism, and suggesting, quote, maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. Um, and then mm-hmm. from his speech, uh, Where Do We Go From Here?, uh, which calls for um, quote, the full emancipation and equality of Negroes and the poor. Uh, the policies for which he advocated uh, guaranteed annual income, constitutional, social, and economic equality, um, expanded public housing, a jobs guarantee, living wage, universal health care, kind of all the stuff that we're starting to hear more about now. Um, he not, he not only spoke on these issues from a a Christian lens, but unequivocal, unequivocal, uh, I really having trouble with that word unequivocally. (laughs) Um, but who doesn't right? uh, tying them to, uh, tying those issues to civil rights as well. And, uh, to quote, uh, the, the piece what good is having uh, the right to sit at a lunch counter, uh, King is widely quoted as asking, if you can't afford to buy a hamburger? Um, in, King, in King's view, the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins, the voter registration drives across the South, and the Selma to Montgomery march comprised but the first phase of the civil rights movement. In Where Do We Go From Here, King called the victories of the movement um, up to that point in 1967, a foothold no more in the struggle for freedom. Only a campaign to realize economic as well as racial justice could bring uh, true equality for African Americans. In naming his goal, King was unflinching the total and immediate abolition of poverty. And uh, just wanted to add a little bit to that. And King also, he didn't... Um, flinch i think in applying biblical principles of uh work in his anti-poverty stances i mean he sort of blended the two in pretty um pretty naturally um the common tired response that you can think of to anti-poverty programs is that it creates dependence and robs agency and i i think actually there's maybe an angle uh where where that there's a, a kernel of truth in that um but um, you can obviously take that argument in bad faith and run with it, um, that people ought to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. And, uh, of course, King had a, a concise response to that, that it's all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it's cruel, uh, to say a, to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by those bootstraps, um, or mm-hmm. some, something to that effect. Um, he said that he also said like the best anti 
poverty program as a union uh, when you can fight for your own mm-hmm. agenda. Someone doesn't have to hand it to you, um, but you have to be organized to do that. Um, so the question I'd like to, um, after that vamp, sort of start us off with is, uh, do you think there's, do you think there's, and this is a genuine curiosity that I've, I've had for a while, um, do you think there's a taboo um, for ministers in the U.S. to critique our economic system? Yeah, for sure. Um, and what kind of factors sort of, um, I guess, uh, do you see that contribute to that? Or, or what have you, maybe even what have you personally felt? I'd say the number one factor is the church budget. That the every church budget. year we are... Yeah, we the church has a certain need to pay for utilities and maintenance to pay its staff people. We have infrastructure to maintain, and because of that, it requires a certain amount of money to keep it up. And in my case, there are some people on whom I depend for tens of thousands of dollars a year to contribute to that. And if I don't have them contributing, it leads to serious changes in how we operate as a church. Mm. If I had my way, I'd want to tell people live like Jesus. Jesus lived a simple life, only took the things that he needed. If he had excess, he gave it away. There, there was a line of thinking among the early Christians where they said, if you're a wealthy person, you don't have to give away everything that you own. You don't have to follow the way of the rich young ruler as Jesus advised him to sell all you have and give it to the poor. They said, you don't have to sell everything. You just have to sell half of it. (laughs) Nice compromise there. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, And if I had my way, I would say that exactly to all of my people out there in the pews. But I don't think they'd stay, and I don't think they'd follow me on that, and I don't think they would contribute to help the church happening. Contribute to help the church happen next year. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe it's just my personal confidence that I need to say this is what the gospel calls for, and I'm gonna call for it. But <laughs> it's uh, I mean, that's tough. That's that's tough. Yeah. That that really puts you in in a predicament there. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the viability of the, the church that you're entrusted with is, you know, is, is a tricky thing to maneuver. And so nothing sets, um, nothing has the potential, um, especially how our culture is structured. Um, nothing has the potential to really sort of make people angry and, 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 and oppositional and, and drive people away and, and point fingers than um, criticizing or commenting on um, wealth or greed or how that wealth was accumulated or what you should or shouldn't be doing with that. There's this kind of like um, maybe such an attitude in America that you can, you can criticize um, you know, some, how some people choose to live, um, in other ways, but don't talk about someone's finances or don't talk about, mm. um, you know, their, their well, wealth. You can talk about poor people's finances. Right, but you, you can't, can you can't, yeah, oh, yeah. Money, 
how you they're can, how they're not saving, how they make irresponsible choices. You can talk about their finances. You can't talk about wealthy people's finances. Yeah, you can criticize people that are in front of you in the grocery store using uh, WIC or SNAP benefits because it uh, maybe slows your day down um, for a couple of minutes mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. use that emotional state to sort of... Um, make some commentary about how they're becoming lazy and you know whatever like despite <laughs> well, and what if, yeah what if they use those benefits to buy a couple candy bars well I that mean, would really be that's a sign of their irresponsibility and their vice and that's right. why they're poor well that would be trying to extract the tiniest amount of uh pleasure out of mm-hmm. an otherwise uh dreadful uh, indentured economic <laughs> outcomes and that's completely unacceptable so there you go we can't have that um so i think that's a that's a helpful insight that's something that um you know especially from from the outside looking in it's hard to sort of understand that dynamic so i appreciate you sort of um, identifying Mm -hmm. that a little bit um i want to inject a little bit of uh of sociological theory into this uh as well um so symbolic interactionism it looks at um the function of religion as symbolizing the sacred um Uh. so crosses the virgin mary baptism the eucharist etc um Mm. yeah does does culture play into that um, cause Americans sure seem to have kind of a different culture of Christianity. Yeah. On the one hand, there's sort of, uh, the belief that religion should be this as a sacred ground, therefore a neutral ground where we don't discuss anything controversial or anything that might not make me feel good mm-hmm. because it's supposed to be a place where I always feel good coming out of it. It makes me feel better about my life. And I think that belief has been reinforced by the way a lot of churches have proclaimed Christianity for the past several decades, Mm. that we have adopted a sort of American cultural Christianity that takes the messages we can draw out of the Bible and... I don't even know if it's an intentional process so much as it's just the unintentional way that people who have been formed in this kind of faith read the Bible and then proclaim it. We take the messages that come from scripture and we twist them so that they say, you're a good person. You're doing okay. Please help out other people just a little bit. And and pat yourself on the back because we're all, we're, we're all doing well here. Right. And that's, that's been our message. And that's part of why I think our churches are declining because we've stopped challenging people. We've stopped making Christianity interesting. We've taken all the blood and the life out of it. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, there's, there's a belief among many that church should always leave me feeling good. And there's some folks who think that that's exactly what the Bible does. And I don't think they've read it because that's not what <laughs> right. it does. Yeah. Very, there, there's actually really um, 
following at least the narratives and the histories of the Bible, there's very actually little that I've encountered that makes me feel necessarily great afterwards. Um, right. Um, I mean, whether, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, um, the early church, um, the life of Jesus, um, pretty much everywhere you go, there's like blood and suffering and persecution and slavery right. and, um, and like to extract, to, to extract out of that, um, a sense of, um, um, like your uh, middle class life is exactly what God wants and you should feel good about it. Right. You have what? to just pick out one little verse, take it all out of its context and say, Oh gosh, that one little verse says I should plant my buckets here and pray for the welfare of the city. And that's what I'm going to do today. Mm-hmm. And just but, forget about the fact that that comes in the context of exile and slavery. Right. Like, but do that, you know, pray for the outcomes of people, but from my safe bunker of accumulated, uh, social mm-hmm. and economic capital. Um, yes. and, and yeah, I, I, that's, that seems to me to be, if that's not what's coming from the scriptures, then that's, um, coming from, you know, a, a very, um, cultural contribution um to the imagination i think of um of 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 religious life um that's well said i feel like that's something that's added um you know because you can't i i haven't found it yet in my personal uh practice the part that is like Mm. um seek comfort first and then Mm. from your comfort um, feel bad about, um, you know, the guy in the, on the median at your stoplight and, um, and then mm-hmm. feel good after you give him like your extra coffee that was, is half, you know, lukewarm from church or something. Um, mm. but so, so Americans seem to have a different culture of Christianity. Um, and l- again, looking at symbolic interactionism, there's, symbolizing the sacred there's sacred symbols um could it be that we've added additional sacred cows um to um the the religious practice specifically um you know things that we've already been talking about like capitalism nationalism mm-hmm. um white identity yeah. um things like that mm. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, I I mean that's that's sort of how I read that. Um, like that they're so sacred, and that's I get that impression. Um, because I I grew up in a in going to churches that had um flags um in them mm-hmm. uh right to the right and the left of the the minister. On one side is the American flag, on the other side is the Christian flag. So I. Um, mm-hmm. and, we, and we talk about people adding things to the faith. Um, um, and personally I did that more reflexively. Like I didn't really know anything different. I understood that to be, this is what practicing Christianity is. Um, mm-hmm. and so, um, kind of baked into the cake there 
is um, sort of American nationalism because I'm staring at that flag and literally during Bible school, I'm saying the Pledge of Allegiance, um, Mm. you know, um, during or I I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag, another one, you know, which Mm I I assumed it had a crucial place in the history of Christianity that could be traced to anything following Christ related to following Christ or anything that wasn't, um, um, associated with, uh, some really problem, (laughs) problematic stuff. But, um, yeah, but so those things are kind of baked into, into my mentality. And so that gives me the sense that it's culture, um, Mm -hmm. that's adding that. So, um, it's hard to, um, criticize something that's associated with other sacred things. Like if you have both the cross Mm. and, um, uh, our economic system, um, symbolized as both are in the sacred category. Mm. What, what can you do about that? If anything, like, (laughs) yeah, there's a wonderful book by Charles Campbell, who's a, a homiletician at Duke Divinity School, and it's called The Word Before the Powers, and it outlines a variety of strategies that can be employed to speak the word to power with the assumption that the people sitting in our congregations are, are themselves the powers or they are under the thrall of the powers. Mm. And so knowing that, knowing that they have been raised up on ideals of individualism and competition and accumulation and knowing that those things have been baptized for them as sacred, how can you then proclaim a message that will be controversial to them in a way that allows them to hear it? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you come in like John the Baptist wearing, you know, camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey and shouting at the top of your lungs, folks aren't going to hear and respond to you. If read, you come in a way that room. is culture. <laughs> Yes. You come in a way that's culturally acceptable. You dress the right way. You look the right way. You're speaking from the pulpit. That's step one. Step two is you can approach the controversial topic in a confessional way. Mm. So rather than saying, you know, listen, all you jerks who are keeping too much of what you own and not giving it away to the poor. Instead, I might say, here's something I really struggle with. I look around and I see people who are not doing as well as I am. I'm aware that as a person who makes somewhere around, you know, the median salary for a U.S. person, I'm one of the, I'm in the 98th percentile of the world's richest people. I am more wealthy than 98% of the people in the world. And I struggle with how to thank God for being blessed, for having the things that I have. And then looking around and knowing that so many other people don't have those blessings. Mm -hmm. Do I feel like they're not blessed by God? 
And that way I can kind of start to creep around the edges of those beliefs yeah. and, and just begin to, to, to get people thinking in a different direction. Mm. Um, and I think another powerful way to do it is to tell stories. Right. Um, just right. help to expand, help to expand people's awareness of, of the world by exposing them to, to different people's stories and experiences that then that's another way to get them thinking about something different than, than what they know and believe. Yeah. I mean, it worked for Jesus. I mean, to an extent, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, he seemed to adeptly, uh, use, uh, this strategy that, uh, that you're, you're suggesting here. But, um, so do you think that the pastor, um, or the, the clergy or, or whatever, uh, face a pressure, to be a sort of politician in the sense of maintaining order over speaking truth to power? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, so I think in some scenarios I, I you have like, to say yes, right? Like you see it um, in some past in, in, in some churches, especially, you know, I, I, I tend to think that's how mega churches play out. You really can't, um, um, you know, you have to maintain sort of social, social order, um, because that's a lot of mm. people. That's a huge operation that you have to keep going, but yeah. 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 The, the terminology I often think of this in, in terms of is it's my responsibility to hold the coalition together. There's a coalition of people who have come to be a part of this church who have found God through the church that I lead. And it's my responsibility to hold the coalition together. Mm. And part of what that means is if I offer a message that I think will be challenging to people or very, very challenging, it means yeah. that my next four or five messages are not going to be challenging in that way, that we're going to go back to safe ground for a while. Mm. So just kind of um, uh, yeah. gradual sort of exposure therapy of the, of, uh, yeah. guiding the flock. We, we, we meet people where we are. We try to help them take the next step. At least that's my view. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, um, that's, that's the art of praxis basically. I mean, that's, mm. um, knowing where you need to go and knowing where you are and practically, um, you know, like you said, going in, kicking down the church doors, um, and screaming at people and not showering for a month like that's that might work for for certain (laughs) congregations but um specifically thinking about ours and i don't think that would work (laughs) um probably not i'm skeptical that it would work otherwise maybe i you know maybe i would have done that um (laughs) so pastor steve is god is God an old white man with a beard? <laughs> no, God is above gender and God encompasses all genders. And God is in things that are really good, like creativity and generosity and healing and wholeness and people coming together, especially when you wouldn't expect it. Hmm. God is this being that holds all good things together and drives us toward what is holy and wondrous. 
Now, so my I, actually that's a that's a better answer than I was anticipating, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it so the 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 nature of the question is rooted in sort of a, a broader one that I wanted to sort of jump to. Um, but you gave such a beautiful answer that I want that to soak in for a second. Um, but how do you see Christianity, um, in its relation to the patriarchy? Um, thinking about the role of women in church, thinking about the history of, um, the way the church has been used or some, people have used uh, structures of religion to control women's behaviors, um, those kinds of things. What, what's, what's your reaction yeah. or what's your, what are your thoughts on, 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 on that phenomenon? Yeah. My first thought is that at its best, the church should be a force for liberation in, in a society. And that's a, a force for liberation for, any people who are struggling to get to a point where they can be fully self-actualized and in our culture that very much includes women and poor people who are not white and 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 it also includes people who are in that majority group who are oppressors because they too are not fully self-actualized because they're limited by their place as oppressors Mm. ideally the church should be liberating people from both oppression and from being in a position of dominating others. Mm. But so often it simply entrenches what a culture, it simply entrenches what's already in a culture. Mm. When we get to a point of thinking of Christianity as a nice message that helps us feel better, a nice message that can save souls, a nice message that shouldn't challenge anybody and where they are unless it's to save their soul, then all it does is entrench the power structures that are already there. Mm. Um, there and is that- no such thing as neutrality in the face of power. If you are neutral, if you are supporting the power structure, the power structure depends on you not actively opposing it. Right. And so if you're not actively opposing it, you're supporting it. And that's, that's how Christianity so often supports patriarchy among a number of oppressive forces. Yeah. Um, do you feel like there's, there are some things that people point to in scripture to, um, that have, that have pointed to, I mean, so slavery used, religion as a moral justification they brought up certain passages about sinfulness of having dark skin i've you know i forget this specific verse that they sort of described that um honestly Mm -hmm. it's it's hard for me to sort of research those justifications and wrap my mind around them um though, though i think it's important um but do you feel like the what have people pointed to specifically in scripture to point to the, ins- the existence of a patriarchy? Sure. Or the, the, uh, um, the role of Christianity in supporting that patriarch. Yeah. Certainly one can find passages that refer to women not being allowed to teach in churches, women being told to be submissive and to be quiet. Um, certainly much of 
much if not all of the Bible was written by men. Most of the characters featured are men. Most of those lifted up as heroes are men. So in addition to the individual passages, there's just kind of a steady drumbeat in scripture of this is a male story that's about male people. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, I think, is the primary figure who disrupts that by incorporating women so thoroughly into his ministry and even in books that were then written by men who had particular interests, they couldn't suppress the fact that Jesus made women central to his ministry and empowered them to be the first preachers of the gospel, the first ones who proclaimed the resurrection. Yeah. And so in some ways to, to find a liberating message, we have to read between the lines and kind of peek around the corners a bit. And we also have to draw out the broader principles of scripture that go beyond the individual stories and the individual accounts. We have to see that, that all of scripture calls us to love and wholeness and equality and justice and use those as a lens to reinterpret those passages that can be seen to support patriarchy. Yeah. And I think, uh, an often, um, misunderstood component, um, when we talk about, um, history of, you know, this, uh, this specific history is times when, um, like the Bible going back to these different passages, uh, um, and people pulling these passages out of the Bible and saying that, um, that is sort of creating, or this, this is, this is creating this social order and Christianity it has perpetuated this order when um, basically um, this, the passages that point to like certain periods of times, um, it's jumping into history. It's, it's talking about mm, Christianity yeah. within the context of history, not saying, you know, Christianity made history, but this is the story of humanity that, um, that, you know, Jesus enters. And, and so mm-hmm. I think sometimes that framing gets lost and it's just sort of assumed that, um, like there's no separation there when I think that would be helpful. And so the, mm-hmm. some of the things that might be, you know, like you were talking about Jesus, um, ministry with, with women, um, um, with, with, with treating them as more as equals than they might've had at the time, then that might've been available to them at their, within their, their cultural context. If you, if you look through that list, they were, they were his wealthy, they were his wealthy benefactors. His preaching had to accommodate them. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Go on. Um, No, that's, uh, (laughs) I I think that's exactly, I think that's correct. Cause and I, I, that's just my point is that I think there's a, mm-hmm. there's a lens, there's a perspective there that we lose where it doesn't really help us critically examine. And there are, there are some things that people I think in good faith can seriously critique about Christianity along with other, uh, uh other religions of the world. But, um, yeah. And, and, and that's one thing to acknowledge that and to be honest about that. But if there is, I mean, we have to put things in, in their proper context and, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. we don't. 
Yeah. I've heard it said by some commentators that we know when we look back at the Bible that sometimes it reflects physical science that we have now moved on from. It reflects the view that the sun revolved around the earth. It reflects other sorts of, you know, scientific views of the day that we now know are wrong. Mm. In the same way, we should reject the social science behind the Bible Mm. um, when it doesn't fit within those broader principles of Scripture, that there are certain assumptions people made back then about gender, about sexuality, about uh, people of different ethnicities and races, and that reflects a, a faulty social scientific understanding of the world that mm-hmm. no longer needs to be codified in our religious practice. Hey there. So that's about three thirds of my interesting conversation with uh, Reverend Stephen Andrews. And uh, I wanted to sort of make an announcement here at the end that um, there's an extra 15 minutes or so of that conversation uh, and there's the opportunity to get a brand new off baseline sticker. Um, and that will be through going to the show's new Patreon. So I'm launching a Patreon um, for the amount of $2.99 a month. So if you felt like the average show is worth a couple of bucks, two, three bucks, uh, pitch in if that if you feel so called to do, and uh, and we'll make and you can become a patron of the show. And by becoming a patron of the show, you get bonus content every month. Um, and I will mail you a sticker of a new logo I just uh, sort of made up for the show. So, uh, where can you go to do that? Well, I'll tell you. It's uh, patreon.com, surprise, <laughs> slash off baseline. Um, simple enough. So, patreon.com slash off baseline you can become a patron and yeah i don't know if anybody is going to actually do this but if you do you will be rewarded greatly with the specific things that i uh previously mentioned uh love for you to do it and uh there's an interesting uh conclusion to this conversation that you'll have to become a patron to hear the rest of so um yeah, that's my new announcement for 2019. So thanks. Wish me luck and uh, be well. Be well.